All right, good morning, everyone. We'll go ahead and get started with the lesson the Lord has laid on my heart for today. And we are going to get back into and develop some more out of where I left off during the Christmas break, where I was here for two Sundays and taught in Romans 6. So what I didn't have the time was to go into anything entirely new. So the material I had already studied, we're going to look at it again in, in more depth and from a different point of view. So you can be turning to Romans 6. Let me go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have coming to Lakeside to hear your word, to hear it in depth. And Father, we pray for our ears and our hearts, Lord, to hear and obey and, and be changed and transformed by what we uncover in your deep, vast wonderful word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so two weeks wasn't that long ago um, for memories, but we'll give a little bit of review on where we went through Romans 6. Paul has taught, as you would all know, through the first five chapters of Romans, some great, wonderful, deep doctrine. And he comes to what we know as chapter 6, and suddenly there's a departure from the teaching, but there's a development because of where he's going and a chance to teach it more in depth. Because what has happened, and he's heard this all along, it's kind of like the the thing we don't know because we weren't there, but we can understand it when we put all the pieces together, that as he has been teaching all of this great deep doctrine, there are people who keep coming up to him and saying, but wait a minute, Paul. If you keep teaching what you're teaching, you're going to create a nightmare. You're going to create such huge problems that you can't keep going here. You're going to have to stop and change your tune. And the problem, if we boil it all down, is that there's legalists that are hearing his teaching, his doctrine on salvation through grace, by faith in Jesus Christ, They're hearing all of that, and they're having a really difficult time because of their background. Their background is Judaism, and they're legalists at heart, they're traditionalists at heart, and those things are just complicating what they're hearing. And when I taught this a couple weeks ago, I alluded to it from the other side of things, what they're saying could happen. And it isn't so much that these people were part of the error they were saying Paul was going to create or that they thought that Paul was going to create and they were actually people who believed what Paul was teaching him and that and that was that Paul was teaching that God loved covering abundant sin with even more abundant grace such that that's what God loves to do so why not continue in sin they had a license to continue in sin I think these are antagonists who are objecting to what Paul's saying, but I think there's validity in that it could happen. They're saying, Paul, stop this teaching. This is going to be a problem. People are going to hear this. It's going to cause them to just think, I'm justified before God, and I can continue the life of ongoing sin unabated that I knew before my justification. This is great. Where do I sign up for this license? And that's what he thinks is going to happen. That's the first objection that Paul addresses. So what are the what are the issues that they're hearing and having trouble with from Paul's prior teaching that we find in the book of Romans? And it's really with justification and what Paul unveils for us that I taught over two Sundays a few weeks ago 
as he developed even further, it's justification. But taking that a step further in a legal realm, there's a judicial union that is a reality in the life of all true believers. When we are justified by God, we're also now in a judicial union in Christ. When our Lord died, when our Lord was buried, when our Lord was raised, and we're considered judicially having been in his death, burial, and resurrection. When Christ bore the penalty for our sin, we find this connection because you run across, and I think it's in Romans chapter 4, you run across this word reckoned. The word reckoned. And that is a legal, forensic, accounting term that brings us that connection. We're reckoned to have died with him, having our penalty bore together with him. And when Christ was raised from the dead, we were judicially raised as well in him. We have this judicial union in Christ. And when God looks at us in relation to the law, he sees the believer in union with Christ and he measures them together. In this union, they are righteous. And from a legal perspective, from the court of heaven, here's the, here's the reality of this connection, the two are now one. From the heavenly bench, there's been this declaration of righteousness made to our sins account. They have heard all of this, and it, it gets in their mind, and it swims around with their legalism, what they know about the law, and their whole tradition of trying to meet the law in a works righteousness system, and they can't let go of it. It's blending together, and all they can come to is, Paul, stop teaching this. This is going to be a huge problem if you keep on going here. People are going to hear it and think it's, thinks that it gives them license to continue to sin. And it's not a problem in that we're, we're not there and we're not a part of that. The problem is real. It does happen. And so this error is possible. So we can't think, well, that's not us. I didn't come up in a works righteousness type of background, so I don't have anything to worry about. That's great. Let's just keep moving. But the, the possibility is that it does happen, and the reality is it does, because Paul covers this again in Colossians chapter 2, where he warns us to beware of false teachers, and it's in regard to the same issue. So we're going to go back through. We're just going to breeze through the whole chapter really to look at two issues that are going on, because we only addressed one problem or one argument that was coming back to Paul. There was actually two arguments, put a little bit differently. So we have to look at those subtle differences and see what they mean. So we're in Romans chapter 6. What we're going to look at today and look for are two truths. Two truths believers learn about grace. Or you could flip the coin around, it's two errors that legalists make about grace. So truth number one. This is going back and reviewing what we went through for two Sundays. Truth number one is this. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ does not offer this to the believer. It does not offer the believer permission to continue an ongoing sin. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ does not offer the believer permission to continue an ongoing sin. I'm going to start with verse 20 of chapter 5 because that really helps the whole statement flow here better through Romans 6, 14. Chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what shall we say then? And now he's countering the arguments 
of these legalists. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? There's the first argument. Should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? We could let it go at the next sentence and be done with it, but we need to develop the doctrine. Paul says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, because of that, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So there's a theme here in chapter 6 so far from verses 1 through 14. And the theme is this. Paul's answering that critical argument against what he's teaching. And his theme is that justification has initiated a new state in the believer of non-continuance of sin. Justification has initiated a new state in the life of a believer of non-continuance of sin. So the error that Paul's dealing with is really this. I'll just restate it again. This argument keeps coming back to Paul, and they're saying, Paul, here's what we comprehend out of your teaching about grace. You're telling us that we have permission to continue in a life of ongoing sin similar to how we lived prior to our regeneration. Paul, that's what we're hearing you say. And if you keep saying that, it's going to be a disaster. You need to stop. Paul's answer is, may it never be. That's not what I'm saying. You're not hearing and I, I would say go back to the beginning of Romans 1 and start reading it again. Just keep looping till you, till you hear everything that he's taught. But he says, may it never be, and he goes into to more depth of, of doctrine here. So may it never be, there is not to be a continuation of ongoing sin. And here's Paul's argument that we, we unpacked over two Sundays a couple weeks ago. Here's where your thinking is in error on this issue. Number one, believers have died to sin. Believers now live for Christ, and ultimately you misunderstood what I said back in verse 20 of chapter 5. Your misunderstanding is this. You think grace is giving permission to continue in a sinful lifestyle. You say, if greater sin leads to greater grace, then what is wrong then with our continuing to sin even more? Therefore, receiving even greater grace. But Paul says, I tell you this, grace does not offer believers permission to continue in sin. Period. The root of their error, this opposition to the doctrine of justification by grace alone, is really goes back to what I said earlier. It's his audience. They're steeped in legalism. 
and in tradition, and they just had a hard time being convinced and reconciling that they could please God by any other means out of a strict adherence to the law. They equated legalism and tradition with godliness, and if justification was now of grace, people uncontrolled by that law, it's like the chain is broken, but when it's broken and they're unleashed, they're going to sin out of control. And Paul, if you continue to teach this, you're going to cause people just to multiply their sin. People will think they have a license given to sin at will. And Paul understands where they're coming from because he was one of them. He knows it. So he launches into what he teaches in the front part of of Romans chapter 6. So by way of review of what I went through, he said this, consider your new identification. That's where he started. He went to their baptism. It identified you with Christ's death. But he really wasn't talking about the waters of baptism. He was talking about the symbolism and the reality that is attached there. That is the ground of your justification. When Jesus died, you were considered. And that's the the way the word is in the NASB. In other versions, it might say reckoned. And that is that legal forensic accounting type of term. You were considered or reckoned to have also died. From a heavenly viewpoint, this is a reality. It's a hard concept for us to understand. But we were considered to have died as well. And this identification has rendered you, and here was the first point from several weeks ago, you're rendered free from the penalty of sin. He went on to say, consider your union with Christ in his death and life. Verse 4, he says, remember, you have been buried with him. So since he was buried and was raised, so he was raised to life, so you too were raised to new spiritual life. And in verses 5 through 7, he talks about that spiritual reality. Let me just go back over, look at 5 through 7 again with me. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. We have become united. The result is, the second point I went through, we're freed from the power of sin. Because of that spiritual reality, that connection into Christ's death and resurrection. Then he goes into dealing with this and exposing this in verses 8 through 11. This connection is really a very good thing for us. Let's look at verses 8 through 11 again and catch this. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this is really good news. Being reckoned as having died with Christ is a really good thing. He arose from the dead, and for this uniting, working with us, it works both directions. We're reckoned dead, we're reckoned alive, spiritually, in him. And that's good news because in verse 9, Christ only had to die once and it was done. It's never to happen again. And the result is this death is no longer master over him and sin's no longer master over us. Being in a union with Christ means that we also will never die spiritually because we're reckoned to have risen as well. 
And this reckoning, again, is from God's legal declaration, from our justification and from Christ's imputed righteousness to our account. So in the heavenly books, from the heavenly courtroom, the judges said, this is done. The books are cleared. We looked at Ephesians 1 through 2 last time, and just by way of, of remembrance, if you start in a, about verse 15 of Ephesians 1 going into Ephesians 2, Paul's reminding us of this heavenly reality again. He, he says there's this surpassing power towards us who believe. God raised Christ up from the grave, placed him in the heavenly places. God raised up from spiritual deadness us by grace and saved us and sealed us with Christ in the heavenlies. That is a reality. We walk here, but there is a completed reality there. And this reality is all of grace so that none can boast. We've been created anew and we can walk in that new reality while still here on earth. And we can have an unfailing hope and know that we are as good as seated there while we walk here. And the result is that our sin is no longer our master. The power believers have gained comes from our living in Christ. And that's what we believe. If I believe that I live in Christ, then I also believe that I'm not the same person I used to be. I believe it. I know it. I am a new person in him. And this new person that I am has absolutely no business continuing in the old life that I once knew because it's dead to me. My new condition gained from my new spiritual nature that was born anew when God regenerated me and you is to a life in a changed condition. Our state has been changed. My old self, or the old man as, as we know it, was not able not to sin. That was a reality. And that's where we get the doctrine of total depravity. We're not able not to sin, but this new man has been changed. The new man is able not to sin. And Paul teaches the spiritual and heavenly realities that have come from our identification and our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And we've got to live there. We've got to live in this reality of having been united with him in death in a new life. We also have to understand the practical realities that come with this change in our state. I don't have to sin. We don't have to sin because we've been given the power now to say no. That master, that cord, that chain has been cut and we're released from it. So we get to verses 12, 13, 14, and we find for the first time in Romans, Paul giving us commands. So let's see what those commands say. And let's look at that again, starting in verse 12. He says, therefore, knowing all of this, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. I can restate that and say, therefore, if you believe this form of teaching, and we're going to get to that exact phrase coming up, if you believe in this form of teaching, these doctrinal truths, you are going to live differently. There's no other way but that. You will live differently. Real faith in this truth produces real action in your living where you will depart company with your past. 
You will depart company with a continuance of your old sin in your old life. That's the argument and that's the rebuttal. There's no other way. You will do it. And these spiritual realities are what they're missing that we're arguing with Paul. And it's what anyone is missing if they argue that justification by grace is only going to cause an increase in sinning because there's now a license been given to continue to sin. The opposite will happen. There will be a life of decreasing sin. There will be even immediate cessation for many of sin that has been a part of their life prior to their regeneration. I heard a story from a new member of this church recently. Something I thought you would think is going to take all kinds of power and experts to overcome this sin was overcome like that. And many people have these kind of stories. There's been a cessation of sin that had complicated their life for so long at their regeneration. The opposite is going to happen instead. But if you do go on in continual sin and understand what they're asking him, there's no abatement or cessation in your old life going into the new one. If that is the fact, the reality is instead, you have to look in the mirror and say, am I truly saved? But what if a believer does continue to sin? This is what we should know. These are the truths, the truths that should be apparent and known to all of us. What's the change that believers know if we continue in sin? Number one, there's extreme dissatisfaction. Believers are going to be dissatisfied with going back to those old sinful habits or those old sinful ways. Dissatisfied like an adult wanting to be a child again and going back and acting childish. You can't go back to being a child again. We're done with that. We don't want to go there. 18 was not the best year of our life. Okay, we got a lot smarter since then. We wouldn't want to go back there and and be that way again. It is dissatisfying. So that's number one thing that we as believers should know and have felt in the past. Second thing is we're going to be convicted. We're going to be convicted such as if we continue in sin, we're going to be miserable and unhappy. Right? All right, the third thing that we better learn quick, if not, we're going to learn this the hard way, and that is God will discipline. There will be a cost and there will be pain involved with continuing in sin. So, instead of excelling as sinners, Paul tells us we're going to excel in something new. It's in a walk of holiness. So Paul's corrected his antagonist here in in this argument. He's saying abundant grace will not produce abundant sin in those justified by grace. Instead, the opposite. Abundant grace produces an abundant walk with Christ. And the emphasis for this abundant walk in holiness comes from our understanding of the truths of Scripture. That's where the foundation of it is in it, and he's going to expound on that coming up. But he touches on it a little bit in 1 Thessalonians, so if you want to hold your place and quickly turn there on what I was just saying here, on what it really does do in the life of the believer, because he uses the same key word here. Instead of abundant grace producing abundant sin, abundant grace produces an abundant walk with Christ. And the emphasis for this abundant walk in holiness, again, comes from our understanding of the truth of Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction, 
That's why I say it's because of what we come to know and understand about the truths of Scripture and about doctrine. So what we receive from us is instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. And here's the key, that you excel still the more. And the word excel there is from the same word group that these people are arguing against them. They're saying abundant or excellent grace is going to produce an excelling in sin. No, he's saying excellent grace is going to produce an excelling in a walk with God, in a walk with Christ. It's going to improve your walk. So, And he puts the key on that. It's instruction. Instruction from Jesus and about Jesus and about your union with him is what establishes and grounds your walk. His word, let's look on just a couple more verses. Let me go ahead and read this first, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For you know what commandments we gave you. They came by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So it's the word of the Lord that we obey because he is the new authority. It's his will we desire, and his will for us is that we be sanctified that this process that has begun in us at our justification continues on. And we talked about last time, there is no gap. There is no gap. So people teach that today, that there can be a gap, that you can be justified and sanctification is a later reality. They're wrong. There is no gap there. Grace is the full and abundant supply that completely fulfills the demands of the law. Paul uses this similar wording in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And he says, and God is able to make all grace abound or increase to you so that having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance or abound in every good deed. So truth number one is grace does not offer believers permission to continue in ongoing sin. That's kind of a recovering of what I went through for over a couple of Sundays. Now we're going to move on to the rest of chapter six. And there's a new argument that's coming up. And here's the second truth about this new argument, and we'll get into it. Grace does not offer the believer permission for isolated acts of sin. Do you hear the difference? Continuation of your old ways and continue on into saying you're a believer and there's no change in my life. I can continue to sin all the more because grace will cover it. This is different. It's different warning, and we're going to look at these things. Let's look at verse 15. Paul says, what then? And so we're now into... Paul coming back at a different argument. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Same answer. May it never be. Verse 1 and verse 15 are different questions. Verse 1 says, are we to continue in sin? Is there to be a continuation from our old way into our new life? He says no. And he deals with that. Verse 15, he says it differently. Shall we sin? It's not talking about a continuation of our old path now. It's saying, shall we sin? Should we just have any kind of sin? Should there just be an isolated act of sin at all? And so now he has someone else arguing with him that, Paul, what you're teaching is going to say that this is okay. So hear the argument a little bit differently. Paul, if you continue to teach what you're teaching about justification and grace, it's telling people that they can have isolated acts of sin and it's okay. And he really starts this argument in the end of 
or in verse 14, he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. So he goes right into the next argument here in verse 15. Can you have isolated acts of sin? Does the doctrine of grace and justification give us permission, a card to say, I'm free to have isolated acts of sin now. It's okay because I'm no longer under law. Hear what Paul is not saying there. Paul's not saying in verse 15 that believers are sinless. He is not disputing the truth that believers can and do lapse into sin. Paul is saying that you cannot reason that it is acceptable or permissible to sin because you're no longer under the law but under grace. And the moment Paul writes this, he's ready to take on this new argument, this new opposition, this new opponent who believe, again, they're legalists at heart. They believe that one is saved by what one does. So they're asking, since we are not under law but under grace, Paul's, are you telling us that isolated acts of sin are permissible? And his same answer, absolutely not, heaven forbid. No. Since we know that believers do indeed still sin, what then is he saying to this new argument? And he's going to launch into, and we're going to get into this, but he's saying our life, he's told us in the first 14 verses, are bent towards righteous living with an understanding that Scripture does not allow or give permission to lapse into sin. We can't blame it on our being released and not any longer under the law. We cannot, as believers, ever make up any excuse, come up with any reason, and find it in the Bible, in Scripture, that says it's okay just because we're no longer under the law. Remember this, that a lapse into sin for a believer is the same as it was before. It's an offense against a holy God. It will happen. Just don't create any excuses based on God's word that makes it acceptable. The permissibility of sin for the believer is not normative in New Testament teaching on Christian living. Just the opposite. We're to hate our sin. We're to run from our sin. We're to be at war with our sin until it's dead. That's what the New Testament normative teaching is on how we live. So what is Paul's argument about against making sin permissible here? We're going to get into verse 16 here and finish this out. Verse 16, he says, Do you not know? I don't know, I, hear, I read that and think of a lot of other things that come to mind that he would have liked to have said. But I hear, do you not know, and I think it's like a two-by-four to the side of the head when he says this. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Do you not, do you not know that? He's giving a heavenly axiom of the way things are, and he's going, come on, surely, you must know this. Kind of reminds me of of the commercials for the insurance. I think it's Geico, and the first one was pretty cute, and the person says, you know, reads reads the Geico tagline, and and the next person says, everybody knows that. Yeah, And, and then the person says, well, did you know that not all owls are wise? I really think that's cute. The owl keeps going, hoo, hoo, 
And here I think Paul's detractors are going, huh, huh? You know, they're not getting it. But he's saying you ought to know these things. And what he's saying in verse 16 is that you've got two choices in how you live. You're going to present or you're going to yield yourself to one of these two choices. Choice number one, you're going to yield to disobedience, meaning you're yielding to sin and it is still your master. Second choice, you can yield or present yourself to obedience, which means you've yielded to righteousness and Christ is now your master. We know you can't have two masters. Did you know that? We do. You can't have two masters. Knowing which one reigns in your life is answered by a recognition about who you serve. There's no gray area here. There's no in-between point to find these arguments these folks are having with Paul or, or any that we might come up with. No wiggle room whatsoever. There's no one to blame about your choice of the direction you go here but yourself. And I like the way James tags it in Chapter 1, verse 14, about us and our sin. He says, each one is tempted when he is enticed and carried away by his own lust. So there's the ownership. It's his own lust. And when our lust, our own lust is conceived, he says, it will give birth to sin. God has made us to be mastered by only one master. And it's going to be one or the other. Either it is sin that results in death or it's obedience to Christ leading to righteousness. And Paul wants us to be reminded that there's no true salvation apart from a conscious submission to Jesus as Lord. The Lord himself in John 8.34 says, Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Slave masters are very dominating. Slave thoughts, their emotions... Their actions, their speech is dominated by their master. Sin acts as such in that it dominates and controls those aspects of our being. But we've been released from that. Sin's power over us has been broken because we have this new life in Christ. That's the development of verses 1 through 14. This new life in Christ comes with a new master. It's Jesus himself. He now dominates our thinking, our emotions, our speech, our actions. Christ himself is the new dominating force in the life of a believer. So there are arguments that it is either permissive to commit isolated acts of sin or that is an extension of grace replacing the law. One is sure to run headlong into continual sin. None of these arguments hold water. Why? Because you've made your choice. Christ is your new master. It's a self-evident principle that goes along with that, that a believer's choice will be known by the fruit they produce in sanctified living. We get to verse 17, and Paul now teaches that with this change of masters, believers have become obedient thanks to God. Let's look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. We give thanks to God for any and all obedience to his word found in our life because he is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who broke the bonds and released us from our slavery to sin. And this has got to be a contrast to what his antagonists believe. They see works righteousness as the reason for salvation, Paul gives them no quarter there. There's no thanks 
be to you, to man. All thanks go to God. It's all Him. And all glory goes to Him because it's all His work in our salvation. And Paul adds, it's not because of man's external works. It's His internal heart change that has become obedient. And when did this obedience begin? He tells us. He says, it began when we heard what Paul calls this form of teaching. When we have heard the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He says it's the form of teaching to which you were committed. There cannot be a heart change unless there has been regeneration from our dead spiritual nature. There has not been regeneration without the gospel being heard and God converting us. And this form of teaching that Paul refers to then is the gospel. It's the doctrine of salvation and of justification. And the Greek word for the English word in the NASB, if you have that, it says form of teaching literally means to be molded into something new. It was used by those who worked in metallurgy. They took a molten precious metal, poured it into a mold. It cools and voila, out of the mold comes something shaped in the shape of the mold it was poured into. It could be of a potter taking a lump of clay, forming it into something for a different use. It was useless before. It has a new use now. You put it in the kiln and it's fired and it's hardened for that use. That's what this, this word literally means. So once the molten metal is cooled or the clay is fired and it's hardened, it takes the shape of that mold. And its shape has cast it for a new purpose. When we hear the gospel truth and it's committed to from our hearts, thanks be to God, God has literally molded us through those truths and recreated us for something new. It's the truth of Scripture, Paul says, about the gospel that has shaped us into a gospel-shaped image in how we live. We're shaped by sound doctrine. We're molded by doctrine. We're motivated by doctrine. And the great doctrinal truth that Paul has provided us is that we have been molded into the life and death of Christ. Our new shape has a new purpose to live for him and to be controlled by him. And this shaping and molding continues as we go deeper into understanding about these great truths. As we are molded more, we obey more the body of truth to which we were committed. And if we are diving deeper into doctrinal truth, we are conforming ourselves more and more into the image of he who saved us. We heard it. We committed to it. That means we're not involuntarily forced into slavery to Christ. The more we know, the more we will respond to him. So the question, are we then going to continue in sin for any reason? Absolutely not. Heaven forbid. Our new mold and our new master does not allow us to do so. We find no more benefit continuing from isolated acts of sin or connected to our old sinful habits. Let's finish verses 20 through 23 and pick this up. Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the practice and progress of our lives 
it will reveal who our master is. Our need is to know him more. Our need is to yield more of our life that is not under his control now. So two truths for believers, what we learn about grace here. Truth number one, grace does not offer the believer permission to continue an ongoing sin. The second truth, grace does not offer the believer permission for isolated acts of sin. And I said when I started, this may not be an issue for anybody here. That particular way that Paul puts it there. But he goes in in Colossians 2 and describes other antagonists, other false teachers. And their false teaching is really about the same thing, our union in Christ. And he warns us, beware of false teachers. Now, earlier in Colossians, he says in chapter 1, verse 25, that he had a mission, and I believe it's the mission of this church as well, to fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God for the purpose of Colossians 1.28, which is this church's purpose statement too, to proclaim Christ, to admonish men, to teach every man with all wisdom so that we can present every man complete in Christ. So we need to be warned about false teachers. They will arise. A time will arise when men don't want to hear the teaching of doctrine. And Paul gives wise advice in the rest of chapter 2. He says, make sure they don't take you captive and deceive you. And he tells us in a different way how to make sure we can keep ourselves from being captive to heresies specific to these doctrines. He says, therefore, in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up, established in faith, just as you were instructed. There's an analogy there of being rooted. A large tree with shallow roots is going down someday. Let us be those who commit to accelerate our time in his word that we can become more molded like him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for teaching me. Lord God, and we praise you for all that you're doing in the lives at Lakeside. In Jesus' name, amen.